So I'd like to begin this morning with somewhat of a digression, or we could say a confession. But it's planned, so it's all according to plan, so to speak. And just to say, I was, as I was reflecting on yet another chapter in this record of all these kings that we have here, I was noticing just some similarities to what we've seen before. So I figured I'd spend a little moment and just say, yeah, I recognize that. I recognize that... It, You have to know this as a preacher, that there's a certain level of risk that's involved whenever you say, I'm going to preach through an entire book. Or in our case, we're going to preach uh, through two entire books. And those risks kind of uh, come through two different areas. I call them the risk of content and the risk of length. The risk of content is kind of involved when you just commit yourself to studying and reading and preaching. Yes, even those really uncomfortable bits of the Bible. Perhaps you can remember some of those uncomfortable bits we've been through. Remember a couple of chapters ago where there was these ladies eating their own children because that's how desperate they were. <laughs> that's an uncomfortable bit of the Bible that we would probably rather just skip over. Preaching through uh, uh, or committing yourself to preach through a whole book like this, you you commit yourself to even investigating those parts, (laughs) the unpleasant parts. I don't get to pick and choose what I preach. It's kind of right here in front of me. It's that old uh, sort of uh, rhetoric, you preach the whole counsel of God. And it literally means the whole counsel of God, not just what I want to (laughs) Not just what feels good, not what just is appeasing or appealing to people. But also the risk of length has nothing to do with how long my sermons are. The risk of length actually means we have to commit ourselves to even preaching those passages where it feels like you're repeating yourself. Where it feels as though you've, haven't I, man, I would have sworn I've already preached that before. (laughs) And there's times I, I already where I've faced that, and perhaps you've faced that just as a member of the congregation, perhaps. But again, resigning yourself to preach God's words means you're resigning yourself to preach God's words, not yours, not what you would rather say or hear. He's the director of where we go, which is just to say that when it feels somewhat repetitive, You trust that the Holy Spirit has something deeper to say. And I say that because it's easy to get into that mindset. Uh, I'll just uh, confession. It's easy to somewhat read Kings and be like, this is a little bit boring. (laughs) Only because what are we reading about? This king made this decision and it ruined everyone's lives. And then he dies. And then this other king takes his place and he does something bad. And it ruins everyone's lives. And then another king, it, it gets very monotonous. I, I recognize that. When I'm reading it, it feels like, man, I feel like we've been here before. <laughs> I feel like we've done this. This is old hat by now. We're reading about some king who's making some mind-numbing decision that leads to the ruin of his whole people. And the more we read of that pattern, the more we are at risk to becoming almost numb and emotionless to what I think the historian wants us to see, wants us to recognize. Hopefully you're not bored by this pattern, because the pattern, I think, is there by design. 
This historian who is here compiling all of this history, as we said at the very beginning, he's not doing a chronology where, um, you know, this such and such date, this is what this person did, he, and he does this and, and all that kind of stuff. He's left a lot of history out. He's actually compiling books of, we could say, theology that raise the people's minds to an awareness of who is actually behind all that history all along. That's what he's endeavoring them to see. I want you to see that there is a true and a better king than all of those ones who've come before. He's writing to exiled Israelites. He's reminding them of how they got there. And he's reminding them of how this king's failure led to this other failure, led to this, led to this, led to this. And yet, what is he saying all along? Behind all of that failure, behind all of that fiasco of human history, who stands preeminent? Yahweh does. And that's really his point. And that's why he is beating over his readers over the heads, essentially, with... Here's another king who failed. Here's another king who messed up. Here's another king who had it all going for him. And yet he too fails the standard of David. That's what he's going for. He's trying to get us into this mindset of seeing who this God really is. You know, this God is a type of God that's unlike all the others. He readily and willingly embraces those who reject him over and over again. The pattern of scripture, I would say, is the pattern of our lives. And I I would say that's why it's so necessary that we see it. That no matter how many times we fall into that habit of falling away from God, who is always there? Yahweh is. He's always there, ready to receive us, ready to embrace us. And he's driving us to that point to see it yet again. And that's just a long way of introduction as we come to chapter 14, which if you zoom out and you'll see it, it looks rather like just another cookie cutter chapter. Here's a king of Judah and he fails, he messes up. Here's a king of Israel, he fails, he messes up. And we go on, we could go on about our day. But I think, really, they have much for us to glean as we watch these kings make decisions, make choices that might seem foreign, but they're actually very much modern in the terms of how they think. The historian brings us right back into the heart of Judah and the history that is involved with that nation, where now Amaziah is on the throne of Judah, as he began saying there in verse 1. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. He was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadon of Jerusalem. And he's given this interesting, mostly positive review of who he is as a king, as it says there in verse 3. That he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He is seemingly open to this idea of Yahweh being the king and he speaking through his word. And yet it says, yet not like David, his father. (laughs) There's a qualifier. There is a caveat with that description. Yes, he did somewhat good, but yes, he also did somewhat error as well. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father, David. 
He did according to all things as Joash, his father, did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away. He was not perfect king. He failed. He failed to live up to this standard. As you can see here, again, the standard of David is still the standard by which all kings are measured. As you live up according to that standard of kings, as is David is that ideal king, you are measured up according to that. And if you fail it, then you are a failing king, so to speak, in the historian's mind. But as he here notes, you can see the way in which this king Amaziah is conflicted just by this idea that he's following Yahweh in some things. He's open to David's God, and yet he is still not taking down the high places. Those places that were riddled with idolatry and and pagan worship, he failed to relegate to the dust. And so already we're seeing how this king Amaziah is conflicted by this dual allegiance. Partly to Yahweh, partly to other pagan deities, so to speak. And he followed God in some things, and in other things he didn't follow God. And and actually, that's brought to bear even more by verses 5 and 6. Because notice what happens. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew His servants which had slain the king, his father. So if you remember from the previous chapter, his dad is slain by those who were within his own court. And in fact, now as the the kingdom finally comes into his, his, his power, he claims it for his own. He makes sure to kill off all of those murderers of his daddy. But interestingly, he does it by the book. If you could have a by-the-book revenge plan, I don't know. But according to him, he has a by-the-book revenge. Notice verse 6. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, or the children be put to death for the fathers. But every man shall be put to death for his own sin. So, You already now see again here, he has this conflict within him. He's serving himself by ridding his court of all those murderers of his daddy. But he's doing it according to Yahweh's word. So he's this character in conflict. And that sort of becomes the referendum on his life, Amaziah does, as we'll see in a minute. That he wasn't quite totally surrendered to the Lord wasn't quite totally in pursuit of the things of Yahweh and making a part of not just his life but the life of the people he was somewhat conflicted by it we see that here again in verse number seven there's this really interesting account from here on through a couple next next couple of verses as the historian gives us this account of these victories that he achieves in battle He slew of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000 and took Selah by war and called the name of it Jokthiel unto, excuse me, this day. So you have this report of victories in battle and parts of him sees these victories as blessings of God. That's exactly what that name Jokthiel means, the blessedness of God. So he's seeing these victories in battle on the the battlefield and all those sorts of things as signs of God's blessing over he and his kingdom. And yet, if you read the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 25, you'll note that he goes to Edom and he takes back some of their gods with him. 
A king in conflict. (laughs) He goes there, achieves victory, and comes back with some of their deities, some of their idols. And he starts bowing to them, starts worshiping them. See, another part of him relished in these victories, puffing up his pride, puffing up his ego, as it were. So much so, in fact, that he tries to pick a fight with that old king of Jehoash, uh, king of Israel, Jehoash, verse number eight. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. Now you have to know that this is not, this is not invitation to dinner. When he says, come, let's look one another in the face. This is not, you know, let's have a garden party and we'll have a nice, uh, you know, uh, time of tea and crumpets or something. This is more in the line of, more in the vein of, hey, you want a piece of this? You want a piece of me? That's, that's what he's saying the, through this message. You want a piece of me? Look what I've just done. And then Jehoash, this is, we're getting into like old timey sort of going back and forth on Twitter between kings. Because notice what this king does back to King Amaziah in verse number nine. This is awesome. I just, this is great. Notice. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trode down the thistle. Now you might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? And essentially, how he responds to this king is by telling him an old fable. Let me tell you a story, Amaziah. There once was a briar in the land of Lebanon. And this briar thought much of himself. So much so that this briar has the audacity to go up to a beam of cedar in Lebanon and ask for one of his daughters to marry. That's an audacious little briar. And yet before the briar can get an answer, what happens? The briar is crushed to smithereens by this wild beast that's trouncing around in the forest. And he explains his message in verse 10. (laughs) Thou hast indeed smitten Edom, and thine heart hath lifted thee up. Glory of this, and tarry at home, for why shouldest thou meddle to thy hurt, that thou shouldest fall, even thou and Judah with thee? (laughs) See what he's saying? You're the briar, Amaziah, and I'm I'm the wild beast, and you better be careful picking a fight with me, or else you're going to get trampled like that thorn. (laughs) This is a royal put down by these two old rival kings. He's basically telling them, remember your place. Don't stir the pot. Why are you trying to pick a fight with me? Because you're about to get burned. And you and all your people. And Amaziah, perhaps getting a little bit too big for his britches at this point, thinks much of himself, thinks very highly of himself in his own wits, in his own wisdom, as it says in verse 11, uh, where it says, but Amaziah would not hear. He wasn't listening to reason. I imagine at this particular time that he has these counselors saying, you know, you probably shouldn't go into battle with, with Israel. You should just stay home and take glory in the victories you've already gotten. (laughs) But he would not hear. He would not listen to reason. And so it says, therefore Jehoash king of Israel went up. And he and Amaziah king of Judah looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongeth to Judah. So they have this 
laying down of the gauntlet, so to speak. They begin this battle, and it does not end well for Amaziah. It does not end well for Judah. Notice verse 12, and Judah was put to the worse before Israel. And they fled every man to their tents. This is an outright utter humiliation. Put to the worst means that uh, Israel just overcame Judah by just so demonstrably in this battle that it was just an embarrassing display. And every man ran away, ran back to their tents, as it says. And then to make matters even worse, Jehoash, who has been somewhat offended by this audacious little thorny king Amaziah, has now uh, taken up this opportunity to really drive home his point that you shouldn't have messed with the bear. Because notice verse 13, and Jehoash, king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and break down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim under the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the houses of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Utter humiliation it's one thing to get beat on the battlefield and come back home and and try and twist the story but now you're coming back from the battlefield as a hostage watching as these rival king and all of his army is plundering your town plundering your city the city of god no less and plundering the temple of god too while they're at it It's a beatdown of the greatest that you could ever imagine in the face of all of the public. Everyone sees it. The whole world sees it. They see this king humiliated in just this embarrassing display. So much so, and it leads to some in Amaziah's own court conspiring against him to get him out of office. Verse 17, and then Amaziah, son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, 15 years. And the rest of his acts, acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Kind of a bitter end to this king's reign. He thought himself so high and mighty in battle that he could even, yes, uh, go up into war against Israel. And he was utterly crushed by his pride. So much so that his son now is taking his place on the throne. And I think perhaps here in this moment, they, those in Amaziah's court just thought that they couldn't, they couldn't come back from that embarrassment. They had to get rid of him. They had to replace him. They had to get uh, Amaziah out of the way. Amaziah's pride was his undoing. He was undone by how confident he was in his own ability, in his own reason, in his own wisdom. He was prideful to the core. And yet he is that conflicted king because he he knew who Yahweh was. But he had puffed himself up to the point where he did not see or, or feel his need for Yahweh anymore. 
And he paid a severe price for it. Obviously, having this horrible end to this career as king. Being conspired against, being acted and betrayed in treason by the members of his own court. But then the historian shifts gears. Because I want to make a point about that, but in a moment. Because the historian shifts gears to this really fascinating king uh, of Israel at this time. Notice verse number uh, 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and 1 years. Now, it's really interesting, this character of Jeroboam. I'm going to call him Jeroboam II. Only because the original Jeroboam, the OG Jeroboam, is back in 1 Kings chapter 12. And he's the one that we've talked about so often. That they fall into the same pattern of sin and iniquity and strife. What does it say? It says that they have followed in the sins of Jeroboam. He's the original one. He's the original one that led to a lot of this mess. And here he is, this guy who kind of follows in that same sort of vein, has the same name, Jeroboam II. And it's really curious. You wouldn't perhaps know this just by reading this text. You kind of have to read perhaps even, yes, some history to understand, I think, what the historian is doing here. Because you might not at first understand just how somewhat offensive this summary of Jeroboam II's reign really is. But it is just that. It's kind of offensive. Notice what he says. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath to the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet which was at Gathifer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, but that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said, not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred, how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. And it closed, so closes the book on Jeroboam the second. And yet, what's interesting, if you read about his reign, he is one of the most prestigious kings in all of Israel. He has the longest reign out of all of the kings of Israel, of all of them, 41 years and the historian has the audacity to condense that reign to a mere seven verses. He's showing you, I think, what's really important. Because it's kind of, kind of insulting to perhaps some other historians. Because Israel is prospering during this time. They are blossoming. Their economy is booming. Their finances, they are just living lavishly. Living lives of opulence. As he even noted in verse 25. He's increasing the borders so far, so wide. Israel is booming. And in fact, the little note here in verse 25, just the irony, is just the fact that Jeroboam II is increasing Israel's borders approximately to where they were when Solomon was around. 
Solomon is the height of Israel's wealth and affluence. He represents this successful ideal, even though Solomon was riddled by all sorts of sins in his latter life. At his height, no one could surpass Solomon in terms of riches and success. And yet Jeroboam comes a little close. He's right there. He's bringing Israel back. Israel as a nation was on the rise. Every sphere of life is, has this upward trajectory. And you would look at them and say, that's, that's a nation that has something going for them. Socially, politically, financially, they are enjoying all of these effects of Jeroboam II's restoration efforts. With that said, can you imagine something more historically offensive than having all of those triumphs glossed over just kind of briefly as the historian does? And he did some other stuff, and you can read about them. (laughs) Other historians might really hone in on what this king did and what he accomplished and how it was so great for the people of Israel to see this king accomplish so much. And yet here, this Old Testament historian is not interested at all in such things. Because I think he's less concerned where Israel ranks on the list of world powers than he is concerned about Israel's heart. Israel's heart at this time, needless to say, was an absolute wreck. They had no heart for Yahweh. Their spiritual condition was in shambles. As much as it was in all of the kings before. As it says in verse 24. That he did that which was evil in the slight of the Lord. Carrying on the evils of his namesake Jeroboam. (laughs) The very guy he's somewhat named after. Israel's heart was gripped by iniquity, gripped by idolatry, and it was slowly but surely strangling and suffocating the people of God. And yet you wouldn't have known it just by looking at them. You would have thought, man, they are flourishing. Look at how successful Israel is. They got the man, the right man for the job. They put the right man in office when they put Jeroboam II in there. And yet inside... The hearts of the people of Israel were full of rot and ruin. They were far away from where Yahweh was. They were full of dead men's bones. And in fact, the historian is adamant about the success not really being as a result of Jeroboam. Again, notice, I love verse 25. It says, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel. According to Yahweh's word, he's working through this evil king, restoring the borders of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah. Yes, the same Jonah from the book of Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was at Gathifer. He's restoring the prosperity of Israel. But the, the, the notes of it is, it's not because of Israel. It's not because of Jeroboam. It's not because of his amazing prowess and his power and his wisdom and his insight and his authority. It's actually the the way this is worded is more like in spite of Israel. In spite of how headstrong they were. In spite of how rebellious they were. In spite of how prideful they were. In spite of how disregarding they were of God and his word. This is what God did through them. 
Why? Because it says, verse 26, for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel. What affliction? The affliction of their souls. On the surface, they had nothing afflicting going on. The economy is booming. They have nothing to worry about. They have it all figured out. Everyone has a maxed out 401k. It doesn't matter. We have the greatest president in the history of our nation now reigning. He's reigning for 40 odd years. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. And the referendum on their country is what? They had no helper. They had no one to help them in their affliction. And it says, and the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them. He saved them. Despite this guy, Jeroboam. In spite of what he was doing, in spite of what he was saying, in spite of what he was promoting. It wasn't Jeroboam II's prowess, it was God's pity. That's what aided Israel to prosper. Which, again, that's a really bold thing to say, is it not? Essentially, he's maintaining that one of the most celebrated, one of the most accomplished kings in all of Israel's history was merely the recipient of a pity victory. I don't know about you, I hate it when someone says to me, oh, I let you win. I'm very competitive. Me and my wife both are very competitive. We used to play racquetball, and I'll confess to you, I still have to this day have never beaten her in racquetball. We're very competitive when it comes to certain sports. I'll say that we can hold each other's own when it comes to table tennis, but nothing would grind my gears more when she said, oh, I let you have that one. Ooh, the next game you knew. We were, we were going to go at it the next game. But if you're competitive and you like to compete, can there be anything more uh, debilitating than hearing those words? I let you win. And essentially, that's what the historian is doing here. He's telling all these people that this king that you loft and have in such high esteem and high regard, he was let to win by God himself. He was receiving pity from God. He was getting pity victories by this true king of all things. And yet he might have thought that he was uh, building his resume and, and putting all of these badges on his, on, his, on his sash as he marches into battle. Look at all these victories. And yet one after one after one, they were gifts of God's pity, his mercy, the way in which he sees the affliction of Israel. It was God. Who was making Israel prosper. He was behind every single blessing. That they were enjoying. You see in the end. Both Amaziah and Jeroboam II. Teach us this lesson of the tragedy of pride. The tragedy is that pride never has a happy ending. Ever. It always leads to destruction. It always leads to devastation. As that very familiar proverb says. Proverbs 16 18. Pride goeth before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a truth. You can count on it. For Amaziah. That destruction came really swiftly. He was put down on the battlefield. And then put down again. By his own conspirators. Who worked against him. They betrayed him, kicked him out of court, and killed him. Truly a destruction, truly a fall. 
For here, Jeroboam II, that devastation actually came after he was dead and gone. There's a prophet who is contemporary to the times of Jeroboam, who is actually preaching alongside some other prophets. It's the prophet Amos. Listen to this verse. Amos chapter number 6, verse 8. The prophet is speaking about Samaria, speaking about all of the wealth and the riches that they have. Notice it says, Therefore now they shall go captive with the first that go captive. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. And the Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city with all that is therein. He hates the excellency of Jacob. He hates the pride of Israel. You could render that verse. All of their banquets, all of their palaces, all of their splendor, all of their wealth, all of their riches, it says nothing to me. It doesn't mean anything to me, God is saying. I hate it. I hate this pride that comes up out of their successes because they think themselves God. They think themselves accomplished. This is a prophetic reference, I think, to be sure. To what was, come, was, what was to come upon Israel as they were going to experience this desolation at the hands of the Assyrians. And I think the point is that as soon as we think we are somebodies, we ought to be on the lookout for that humbling hand of God, which is surely coming. Sometimes swiftly, sometimes is delayed. But that delay is not there as a a moment of affirmation. It's there because God pities us. He wants us to see that our pride isn't what is leading to our successes. It's his mercy. God hates pride. As he says here through this prophet. And in fact in Proverbs chapter 6. You know what number one on the list of the seven abominations. The seven things that God hates most. What's number one? A proud look. Above anything else. What does he hate? With this holy hatred and indignation. The idea that we as human beings can be lofted in the realm of God's. You see, I think we read those verses throughout all of Scripture about pride and how evil it is, how, how dangerous it is, and all those sorts of things. And I don't think we take it to heart. that We, we think it's like, oops, my bad, I'll, I'll get better next time. This pride that is just wreaking havoc in our souls. Pride is much more serious. Pride is, well, I like to think of it this way, pride is upward rebellion. It's you thinking that you can act in the place of God. You don't need God. Because I am him. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my ability. Look at what have I established for myself. Look at how well together I put my life. Look at how all of these things and so on and so forth. And we can say, I don't need God in that scenario. Pride is upward rebellion. It's this act of invasion into the place that God has reserved for he and he alone. And the result of pride is always exile. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Why? Because they thought they could be like gods. 
The sin of the garden is the sin of pride. It's perhaps the reason why God hates it. Because it's what's made this world into the mess that it is. The Israelites, both those in Judah and those in Samaria, they were going to feel the effects of pride too. As they are both going to be taken captive away from the promised land. They both are going to be exiled. And soon they would feel that. God's word pulses with warnings. Warning us against the evil and the sin of prideful looks and prideful hearts. Proverbs 11.2 When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. Proverbs 29.23 A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Ezekiel 21.26 Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. Matthew 23.12 And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. James 4, 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. James 4, 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You think God's trying to tell us something. The prideful, we could summarize all of those verses in my mind. The prideful will be squished like briars. It doesn't end well. And indeed, if you wanted to, you could condense the Bible into a collection of stories in which the pride of man is utterly demolished to the dust. And the power and the mercy and the presence of God is unmistakably displayed over and over and over again. The pride of man fails and the presence of God persists. And yet after all those examples, we haven't learned our lesson. We still go on thinking that we can be gods. We can rule our own lives. We don't need any other involvement, any other insight. We don't need any other authority. We can be our own authorities, our own gods. Individually, I know that it's true of myself. I'll hasten to say that it's true of you, that we often struggle with that old lie of the garden. Just take and eat. You can be like God. I would hasten to say, too, that not just individually, but can you see this nationally, too? How prideful are we as a country, just as prideful as every other empire that has gone before us, as we go on reckoning that we and our legislature and our authority has brought us to this place where we are. Look at our ability. Look at our ability to wage all of these kinds of wars and all these kinds of social issues. Now realizing that it is God and God alone who has shined his grace upon us. You know, I have no doubt in my mind. I'm not, I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not a prophet, so to speak. But I don't have any doubt in my mind that all this turmoil that we're seeing in our country. Politically, socially, economically. I think it's God's way of reminding us who's actually in charge. And it's not us. <laughs> It's not Washington. It's not who we think it is. He's cutting us down to size. Because we were like a briar going up to a cedar saying, give me your daughter. We're a thorn in the woods. 
And yet we think, us, we think ourselves so high and mighty and powerful and strong when really nothing, we're just a briar. You see, I think that's what's most remarkable about the gospel that we preach. It speaks directly to the sin of pride. How? The fundamental premise of the gospel is what? That the one true God of everything demonstrates his might, demonstrates his control, demonstrates his power. How? By precisely laying those things down. The most powerful God, the only God who has ever existed, demonstrates his insanely far-reaching power by humbling himself to a cross and dying. Opposite of what we might think, opposite of what we would ever think of what greatness is, he comes and shows us that graceness looks like dying on a cross. The exact opposite to what we would think. The exact opposite to our hearts that are so filled with pride. And we want to say, look at us. Look at our accomplishments. Look what we have done. And yet God in Christ comes on the scene and reveals that the only way to make the world right is through humility and sacrifice. And he willingly jumps into that sacrifice. It's the reason why he came, as he says in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to be served, but to serve. And he serves in the most powerful and the most extreme way by serving to the ultimate end of it all. By saying, I will be your servant even unto death, even the death of a cross. That's what he does. That's what the gospel is about. It's about God seeing the affliction of every sinner. And taking that affliction on himself. It's the ultimate act of humility. As he's putting all of the needs of others before his own. And he's saying the needs of the world demand a sacrifice. And I am that atonement. So what does he do? Opposite to what our pride would say, he climbs down the ladder of greatness and he dies a humiliating death on a cross as a common criminal. Shamefully, publicly, openly, having all of his body ripped to shreds on our behalf. And he's doing this, why? Because he's showing us that humility makes the world right. That's how the world is redeemed, through humble obedience. And to me, again, we see how the kings of Israel show us the true and better king. The king of all, the king of glory came down from that glory for you and for me. I pray that as we come face to face with this king on a cross... We too will have our pride squished like briars. We'll be humbled to remember that we are as as nothing. We are as dust. And yet God designed a way for us to be delivered. I pray too for our country. How many times have you said that phrase in the last couple years? Pray that God humiliates us. Yes, 
Pray that God humbles us. Humbles us to our knees. That we remember who we are. Remember that we are as nothing. And it's only God who has given us all of this grace that we so are lavished in. The world is churning and it's burning, we might say, because of the pride of the human heart. It's wreaking havoc on our homes. It's wreaking havoc on our schools, on our, on our cities. Everywhere you look, you see pride leading us more and more into destruction and devastation. What will change the world? The preaching of the humble one. The preaching of the one who, yes, cast off his princely garb and took upon himself what? The form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And yes, he was obedient in that service all the way to the cross for you and for me. This is our true king. He shows how glorious he is, how powerful he is, how mighty he is. Yes, by dying, by humility. This lowly love that he demonstrates in the cross, that's how he has saved the world. He has seen your affliction, sinner, and he has taken it on himself. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer.